Um, so a few, uh, a few years ago, I was working with an organization, a missions organization and had the privilege to serve um, in, in various places around the world. But the main place I worked was in uh, Sudan. I would go in and out of Sudan a lot. I would spend a, a total of about, usually about a month at a time there, spend about three months out of the year um, in Sudan, South Sudan and North Sudan. And uh, on, one, uh, or on a few visits, I went into North Sudan in this area called the Nuba Mountains, the Nuba Mountains. And it's a, a very um, difficult place to get to and a very persecuted group uh, of, of believers. Muslims there are persecuted and Christians there are persecuted uh, by, the, um, by the government of North Sudan. And uh, I was able to, to go in and, and, and our group was able to partner with a pastor there named Samir. And Samir was and is uh, caring for a lot of orphans. But when we found him, I found him literally walking out of a, a field and... Uh, I asked him if he knew anybody doing work with orphans, and the, the, the original person we had gone to connect up with, that didn't work out. And, and he says, oh, well, uh, over here, there's a little work I'm doing with some orphans. And he's a pastor, and he's a farmer, and uh, somehow he was supporting 500 orphan children in, in this war-torn area. It was amazing, and we were able just to come alongside him and support what he was already doing, what God had already called him to do. So we went to church on a, on a different trip. It was just me there, and, and uh, I was the only light-skinned person there, and, uh, the only, and really one of the few that ever went there, and um, this was a really, really rough time there. And we went to this church service, and, uh, and there was somebody outside just kind of looking up in the air, and that person's job was to watch for the airplane that, that the northern government would use. They would send these Antonov airplanes around to come and they would throw a bomb out every now and then. And, and even when they didn't bomb, they would just use the, the planes as an intimidation tactic. And so this person standing out uh, watching, uh, his job was to say, hey, I see a plane. And then everybody would run out and jump in these holes around the building that had been dug in the ground, kind of these, uh, these bomb shelters. And so it kind of puts our air conditioner troubles last week into, into perspective, right? And so, uh, and so we're standing there having, having this church service, and there was this beautiful uh, uh, woman holding her, her child who's about a toddler, and this child did not like me. And, I'm, and when a child doesn't like me, I, I really take it like an opportunity. I want to get this child signed up for the Matt McGowan fan club, and, and, and I really work hard at it, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But this child just kind of, the closer I got, this child got more and more terrified of me. And I mean, it's, I mean, I'm a terrifying looking guy, but also I, I, I looked very different to this child. This child had not seen somebody that looked like me before. And, uh, and so I stick out my hand and the mom is saying, you know, stick your hand out. You know what moms do? She's like, just, you know, shake the weird guy's hand. And so, and so the child uh, shakes my hand and then just starts screaming and looks at his hand. And, and we realize that he thinks that the white was going to rub off of me and onto him. And he's just like, ah! You know, and, and the mom tells him something, and I asked the pastor, I said, what, you know, because she's speaking in their native di- dialect, and I said, what, what did she say? And, and the pastor said, well, she told him that uh, uh, he's just like us, talking about me, he's just like us, God just made him out of a little lighter dirt. Um, and that's actually a pretty, uh, pretty helpful, pretty sophisticated view of creation, that, that she goes back to the creation account. There's one God that made all people, and we're united um, uh, by that creative act of God. We're going to talk a little bit about an elephant in the room, and in, and in our time and space in which we live, this elephant is usually in the room, and we're going to talk a little bit about 
about race and prejudice and racism. And so it might be an awkward conversation. I do not claim to be uh, the authority on this issue, but I do have a responsibility before God to, uh, to speak to issues that emerge in our day and to speak so biblically. So I'm going to do my best to do that. I'm going to do my best to speak to and about an elephant in the room. But when we think about that word prejudice, I'm reminded of a story told about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, amongst other great things. Um, he was an intellectual giant, and even apparently at a young age, he was very, very sharp. At the age of six or seven, Lewis told his father, he said, he said, Daddy, I have a prejudice against the French. And his dad said, why? And Lewis responded, well, if I knew why, it wouldn't be a prejudice. And, and, and there's, that, there's a lot of truth in that. That, that, that word prejudice uh, comes from the root words to prejudge. Um, prejudice is something that maybe we carry about a group of people based either on race or based either on their socioeconomics or based on the way they look or things that they do. Maybe we carry, we prejudge a group of people based on stereotypes or based on fear or based on bias. And anybody can have prejudice. I mean, any racial group can have prejudice. Any group can have prejudice. Uh, People in power, people that don't have power, anybody can have prejudice. And that's that's kind of that idea of prejudging somebody else. And sometimes or often we don't even know why we're doing it. But then a word that's often paired with and used with prejudice is the word racism. And racism kind of goes to the next step, and racism is a race-based, systematized discrimination of a group of people based on their racial identity. Um, And so racism is a system that, that's where the ism comes in, it's a system that that has the agenda of keeping a group here and another group here. And with racism, in ways that with simple prejudice, it's not necessarily, with racism, there's power and privilege dynamics that are really, really at work. And so prejudice and racism are both going to come to a head in this passage of Scripture from Acts chapter 10 that we're in today. Because what, what, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to tell Peter, who is a Christian, but he's been raised as a Jew, he's been raised to uh, not associate with anybody that's not a Jew. He's been raised uh, from the Scripture to believe that anybody that's not a Jew is unclean. And he and his people would have told jokes about the Romans. The Romans were these occupying powers of Jewish people called Romans dogs. Do you know that sometimes um, people from one racial group will call another racial group names? Did you all know that that used to happen 2,000 years ago? And, and they would tell jokes about Romans Did you hear the one about the Roman that did this? And then Romans would also tell jokes about the Jews. And they would say, man, these Jewish people, they don't even eat bacon. Like, they don't eat eat pork. And pork was the cheapest kind of meat. And they'd say, man, these guys don't eat pork. They're they're uppity and they're snobby. And and the Jews got blamed for all kinds of stuff. And so there was this mutual hostility between these two groups of people. There was this mutual uh, prejudice um, uh, uh, between these two people. And prejudice and racism have been with us since the fall. And they, they just keep, in different times and places, they keep popping up their heads in individual ways and in systemic ways. And there's some pretty fundamental ways that prejudice and racism have played out in our own nation's history. I realize it's almost the 4th of July, and I, I realize that we live in the greatest nation that's ever been, and it's a privilege to live here. But there's also truths about our history as a nation with race that that we all know, 
Um, and, 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 and race and prejudice have worked out in the West, particularly in the U.S., in some troubling ways. And often the church in America has been informed more by... Um, you know, our, our, more by kind of racist ideology than we have by the Scripture. And so if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we want to, be, uh, we want to be faithful to continue to be learning and asking God, God, do I have blind spots that I'm not aware of? You know, in the Me Too movement, where, where you've got women that are, uh, that are saying, hey, I was abused by a man in power, it's really tempting for men to say, hey, I'm not like that. I mean, I'm not a sexist. I'm not like that. And with, as, as things are, uh, come out about, about, about racism, it's really tempting to say, hey, I'm not racist, I'm not, I'm not. And, and, and really, that's not super helpful to jump to the conclusion that I would never do that. Um, what I think is helpful is to pray Psalm 139. Lord, search my heart and know me. Reveal if there's any hurtful way in me. And maybe if we approach this issue with, instead of I'm convinced that I'm not righteous, or, or I'm convinced that I have no prejudice, Maybe if we approach it with, God, show me where my prejudice is. Show me where it's there, and maybe I don't even see it. Um, why does it matter? I, I think as we walk through this, we're going to see why it matters. Again, it's an elephant in the room, and I want to speak to it, because it's coming to us from God's Word. So, again, in our nation, 400 years ago-ish or more, um, the idea of race as we know it, because we, we're informed by our thoughts on race, by our history, by our story. And our thoughts on race emerged as a way to justify slavery and to justify oppression of other people. We know this from history books. Um, I, I was talking to a, a man, a Christian that I respect a lot one time, and I was talking to him about the, the civil rights uh, march and how you know dogs and, 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 and uh, uh, hoses were turned on uh, on peaceful protesters, and his response to me was, that's not the way I remember it. Well, it's historically verifiable. It's, there's video of it, like that actually happened, but it wasn't the way he remembered it. Okay, so there's some, uh, there's some difficulties here that I'm going to try to navigate. Um, our founders wrote that all men are created equal and that all are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we know that that all didn't apply to everybody. It didn't apply to people that were brought here in chains from Africa. It didn't apply to the Native Americans that lived here already because we created this idea of race, that one race was superior to others in order to justify oppressing large groups of people. There was this underlying, but not hidden at all, theme in our history of white superiority. So much of the church in America was tainted by that. And, uh, and, and so one of the things the church did, for example, in the past to justify slavery or to justify Jim Crow was we, we, we read in like to the account in, in Genesis, uh, the account of Noah's story and then the table of nations that comes after him, Noah's sons. And we said, well, uh, this son that got cursed, that's the son that went and settled Africa and see these black people, they deserve what's happening to them. That's racist. That's bigotry. That's crazy stuff. But that formed... Uh, a, a lot of people's beliefs about race. So there's kind of a conundrum about race in our country is that slavery finally ended largely because the church opposed it. But the other side of it is that, that slavery lasted so long because so much of the church defended it. And so when we try to talk about the elephant in the room, 
a lot of people from the majority culture, which the majority culture here is, is white, a lot of people from the majority culture will say, hey, I never owned a slave. What do you want from me? Well, acknowledged, probably nobody in this room owned a slave. Um, but that doesn't mean that we didn't inherit a system that maybe is flawed. Um, and so we like to maybe say, well, those days were ancient history. But there's people in Sweetwater, there's people right now that remember drinking from a different water fountain. There's many of us in this room. Not us, but I don't, but many people in this room remember drinking from a separate water fountain. That's not ancient history. That's not like a long time ago. That's recent. Um, so I, I want to approach this from the perspective of what do we, and, and you know, you've got to be blind to see that we, we're, not, we're living in a moment today where there's heated uh, dialogue about this issue of race. So how do we as the people of God respond? Um, who in here has heard the preacher Charles Spurgeon quoted? Charles Spurgeon. I've quoted him, so just humor me and raise your hand and pretend that you listened when I quoted him. Okay? Uh, his books crowd the shelves uh, of, of many libraries all over the world. He's one of the most quoted Baptist preachers of all time. He was pastor uh, in London. And in the late 1800s, he was warned that if you visited the U.S., don't visit the South. Anybody want to guess why he was told not to visit the South? Because he preached that slavery was an abomination to God. And so his life was threatened in the South. His books were burned. Like in, in towns in the South, Charles Spurgeon's sermon manuscripts and books were gathered up and burned because he dared to speak against slavery. In Florida, Spurgeon was called a beef-eating, puffed-up, vain, over-righteous, pharisaical, English blabmouth. In Virginia, he was called a fat, overgrown boy. In Louisiana, he was called a hell-deserving Englishman. Um, the Southern Baptists ranked amongst sermons, uh, Spurgeon's chief antagonists. Southern Baptists were harder on him than anybody else. In 1860, an article entitled Mr. Spurgeon and the American Slaveholders said this, Southern Baptists will not, when they visit London, desire to commune with this prodigy of the 19th century. They accused him of being a product of the 19th century simply because he opposed slavery. They said, we venture the prophecy that his books in the future will not crowd the shelves of our Southern Baptist book merchants. They will not, and they should not. In 1889, Spurgeon said this, for my part, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. He was not, his stance was not popular at the time, but now we would see, or most of us would see that it was biblical and it was right, and now we quote him like crazy. But 150 years ago, he wasn't welcomed in the South, and his books were burned. Uh, that's a real thing that happened, and that's really not that long ago. So in a similar way that African Americans and Native Americans were dehumanized here not long ago in, uh, in Germany, we know Jews were dehumanized, and pseudoscience was used, and misconstrued biblical texts were used to justify that. And so now we know biologically that, that the differences between races are, are, are minimal. There's actually more biologically, biological difference often within a race than between races. Um, and, and, we, uh, and even the idea of race itself is this fluid concept that's ever-changing. Um, so once we get that, and once we understand that you know, race is, kind of a flu- is, a, is a very fluid thing and it's not as big a deal as we used to think it was, and maybe we've been formed by, by things we shouldn't have been formed by, it's easy for us to jump from there to, hey, you know what? Like, I don't even see color. If anybody uses that phrase, let's not. Um, because we do. 
Uh, it's like me saying I don't see bald people or I don't see beards. Or, I mean, we all see differences in one another. And so if we want to be people who are, who are Christ-like people when it comes to race, that doesn't mean that we pretend that, that, that there's no differences, but we can become people who no longer judge and evaluate each other's worth and dignity based on those differences. And we can even celebrate differences. And, uh, and, and, and that's what I believe God would have us to do with that. And so if we're part of the majority culture, that means that we need to be honest and realistic about our history um, and how maybe we've benefited from that history. And so I had a professor, um, a preaching professor, uh, who in the 1960s was pastor of First Baptist Church in one of the largest cities in our state. Not long ago, a young African-American woman came down to join the church in membership. First Baptist Church, big city, Texas. He welcomed her into membership. There was a meeting at lunch, and he no longer had a job. That was not long ago. That is not ancient history. I grew up not long ago in a white supremacist environment. We hear white supremacy, we think people in pointy hats. I never saw anybody wear a pointy hat. But I grew up in an environment that assumed that white was right. And the white way of doing things was the right way to do things. When we talked about other people, there was a sense of superiority. Um, I would hear things like, I'm not racist, but. People shouldn't intermarry. I would hear that. Well, why? I would hear things like, did you hear the one about the, we familiar with this? Ancient history, right? Even more recently than that, as a young pastor, this young, and I'm not, I'm not talking politics here, I'm talking people, this young man named Barack Obama became a, really, uh, a real contender to become the president of the United States. And people that I had prayed with, people that I had knocked on doors with, people that I had walked side by side with, they started pulling me aside and they started talking about Obama. And guess what? They weren't talking about his policies. What were they talking about? What name did they call him? We know in secrecy, in private. I don't think that was just in one isolated place. I think that was a pretty widespread thing. Now, if somebody disagreed because of policy, that's one thing. But what I heard from a lot of people was a little joke and then elbowing me. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah? Are we together on this thing? So this, this, the, the prejudice and, and, and racist ideology continues. And... A lot of people aren't hard racists in the sense of, you know, being really outspoken, but there's a lot of soft racism that goes on. That we as the people of God, and I know this is awkward, we as the people of God, whether we're white, black, brown, whatever we are, we've got to be aware of, and we've got to overcome. Because Jesus is at work right now, making a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And gospel people are driven to be part of that project here and now. So let's don't try to rebuild a wall that Jesus has already tore down. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus has torn down the wall that divided us from God. He's torn down the wall that divided us from each other. So let's not try to rebuild a wall that Jesus has already tore down. So today in Acts 10, we're reading about a conversion of this guy, this Roman centurion, a Roman captain, a captain of a hundred soldiers. He's a soldier, but he's also devout and he fears God. 
He comes to know Jesus, but he meets up with Peter, this devout Christian who comes from a Jewish background. And this passage about the gospel breaking out of its boundaries in Jerusalem occupies more space in Acts than any other story in Acts. Why? Why does it take up so much space? Why does this story about the gospel breaking out to people that were outside and crossing ethnic lines, why does that take up so much space in Acts? Because when I talk to people today, a lot of times people say, hey, we, get to, we don't want to get too caught up in this racial unity stuff. We don't want to get too caught up in this racial reconciliation stuff. We just want to focus on the gospel. We just want to focus on Jesus. According to the book of Acts, if we're focusing on Jesus and we're focusing on the gospel, reconciliation is going to seep out of us. If we're focused on Jesus, if we're focused on the gospel, diversity is going to happen, not just because it's the trendy thing to do, but because that's what the gospel does. That's who Jesus is, because Jesus is at work creating a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and gospel people are driven to be part of that now. So I'm going to read this passage in chapter 10 of Acts, and I'm going to read it, uh, a lengthy passage here together. Chapter 10, verse 1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, so that means he's a captain of a hundred of what was known as the Italian cohort. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So so, um, Cornelius is a good guy. He's a devout guy. And we would be tempting to say, hey, if I'm a good guy, if I give money to the poor, if I help people, if I do some nice things, if I don't kick dogs, if if I help old ladies across the street, then I'm good. Cornelius, Cornelius was all of that stuff, but he still needed to hear the gospel. So God taps Peter on the shoulder and sends Peter to Cornelius because even though Cornelius is good, he's not saved. He doesn't know Jesus, so he has to hear the gospel. All right? <clears throat> Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 p.m. So 3 p.m. was the time of day that the Jews set aside to, pr- to pray. Cornelius is seeking God Even though he's not at the temple, even though he can't be a a member of the Jewish people, he is praying and he's seeking God. And we're going to find that Peter is praying and seeking God. And God does this incredible work of moving the gospel forward. He does this incredible work of reconciliation. He does this incredible work of breaking man-made boundaries as these two men are both actively seeking God. That's where change happens. It's where change happens in your marriage. It's where change happens with that neighbor you don't like. That's where change happens at work. That's where change happens at church. That's where change happens anywhere is it begins on our face before God. And that's where Cornelius is. He's seeking God. God, do something. Verse 4, he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? The Lord appears. He says, What is it, Lord? And he says to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner, in a house by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, devout soldier, among those who attended him, having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he sends these guys, Go get Peter. That's what God told me to do. So meanwhile, the next day, as these guys... On their way to him, Peter is praying. They were on their journey approaching him from the city. Verse 9, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So Peter goes up at kind of an unprescribed time. He's just seeking God to seek God. It's noon. We're told that lunch is being prepared downstairs. And so it's interesting. He's hungry and he's praying and God sends him a vision about food. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. He fell into a trance. Verse 11, he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But he said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter's good at saying, no, Lord. 
He says, no, Lord, I'm not going to rise and kill it. So what, what's on the blanket here is there's animals like birds and reptiles and pigs and stuff that, that, uh, uh, stuff that the, the, the good Jew like, like Peter is not supposed to eat. And, uh, and, and God tells him in the vision, get up, kill and eat. And he says, that's not clean. I'm not going to eat that. This is, I believe, the original pigs in the blanket recipe, by the way. It's where we got the idea. Um, went over way better in the first service. But um, He sees all these animals and God says, I'm not, uh, kill and eat. And Peter says, I'm not going to do that, Lord. So no and Lord don't belong in the same sentence, by the way. But Peter finds a way to work them both in the sentence. And, 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 and God tells Peter, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. This has a lot more to do with people than it does with, with diet, okay? Peter has been raised to think, stay with me, he's been raised with this view that everybody that's not a Jew is dirty. That everybody that's not a Jew is unclean. And there's been these boundaries that God himself put around the Jewish people, things that they couldn't eat, things they couldn't touch, places they couldn't go. Um, And now God is saying, God's not saying, hey, I'm changing my mind all of a sudden. No, God's saying, hey, I did all that for a reason. And now my story has reached its climax in Jesus. So now you go to anybody I send you to. Nobody is considered unclean anymore. Anybody can come, whoever they are, wherever they come from, can come to have a relationship with Jesus. Don't call common what I've made clean. So while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision meant, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. That word without hesitation could more accurately be translated without making distinction. The Spirit tells Peter, Go join these men not making distinction, not prejudging, not prejudicing that they're different than you. Peter, verse 21, went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Whoa, Peter invites these outsiders, these non-Jews, into his own house to be his guests there. This is incredible hospitality that he shows. This is not something Peter would have done. And then they go the next day and they travel and they they meet up with Cornelius. Verse 24, on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. He had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius has packed his house with all his neighbors and all his friends and all his family. And so Peter, in Peter's upbringing, he would have become unclean by being around one non-Jewish person. And now he's going into a house that's packed with people that are different than him. Imagine a house packed with people that are different than you. Maybe a different race than you. Maybe people that are like tatted up and like uh, uh, skater people uh, and like, you know, and oh, I don't know how to, you know, skateboard or something like that. I don't know. Just somebody different than you. Maybe a Democrat or a Republican. Whatever's different. Whatever that person is. Imagine a house full of somebody different. Would you be a little, a little reluctant? And man, just a couple of days before this, Peter would not have associated with somebody different than him. And now he's walking into a house full of people that are different. And so maybe you're here and, 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 and maybe you have prejudice toward white people. Maybe you have prejudice towards brown people. Maybe you have prejudice towards rich people. Maybe you have pre- prejudice towards poorer people. 
Maybe you have prejudice towards people that make certain decisions. The point for us isn't to say, well, I don't, I wouldn't. The point is for us to say, search my heart and know me. God, what boundaries are you wanting to cross with the gospel? So Peter walks in, Cornelius falls down at his feet. Verse 26, Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Do you see the mutual humility here? See Cornelius falling down in humility, Peter being humble in return. If we're going to share the gospel, if we're going to share life with people different, whether it's people that are different from a different social status, or people with a different amount of money, or people from uh, more or less melanin in their skin, there's going to have to be humility all the way around. In every conversation I have where we try to talk about, when I talk to my, 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 my black or Hispanic or Asian brothers and sisters in Christ, and we try to talk about race issues and what's it like to be a Christian in, in a predominantly uh, you know, white environment, all those conversations are awkward. And I step in it and say dumb stuff every time. And I learn every time. But we've got to be willing to go there. We've got to be willing to step into the awkwardness and acknowledge the elephant in the room. And that's exactly what Peter does. He acknowledges the elephant in the room. What does he say? He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with others or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for or came without objection, I asked them for why you sent me. Peter doesn't walk in and say, oh, you're a Roman? <laughs> Had no idea. Couldn't even tell. You know? He doesn't like pretend to be colorblind to the difference. He says, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be here. He acknowledges the elephant in the room. Man, if it wasn't Jesus, I wouldn't be here. So we talk about this passage, Cornelius gets converted. Peter presents the gospel. And while he's still talking, the Holy Spirit falls and all these Gentiles, all these non-Jewish people place their faith in Jesus, start speaking in tongues, proclaiming the mighty acts of God in different languages, just like the apostles did and the, and the early Christians did in Acts chapter 2. And Peter says, how can, we keep, how can we hold back water to keep these people from getting baptized? They're baptized as full members of the body of Christ on equal footing with Peter himself. It's an amazing thing that happens. Peter gets back home, and we're told in Acts 11 that some members said, did you really eat dinner with Gentiles? Like they missed the whole part about the Holy Spirit fell on everybody and a bunch of people got saved. They said, did you really share a meal with people different than you? And we think, well, that's crazy. But think with me for a second. Some of us are going to go to restaurants right after this. How often, and I know it happens some, but how often today do you walk into a restaurant or walk into a home and see a bunch of radically different and diverse people gathered around a table? It happens. People of different races, people of different socioeconomic statuses, people that look different. It happens, but it probably doesn't happen near as often as it could and near as often as it should. So Peter and Cornelius are not alike according to human standards. They've been raised with this hatred and contempt. They told jokes about each other. Jews called the Gentiles dogs. And I'm sure the dogs had an equally terrible name for the, Gentile, or for, for, the, uh, for the Jews. There was prejudice there. But both are seeking God. And something happens. Cornelius is willing to go anywhere. If he can just learn about Jesus, he's willing to go anywhere and listen to anybody. I hope that's our heart today. Man, I'll listen to anybody if it means I'm going to learn about Jesus. Peter is willing to go anywhere to share Jesus. 
He's willing to go around the street, across the nation, around the world. And so he gets back home and some people say, you ate with Gentiles? And the attitude there is, well, don't we have more people right here in Jerusalem that need the gospel? Don't we have a lot of problems in our own backyard? But Peter had this crazy idea that there was enough Jesus to go around. He had this crazy idea that there was enough grace to go around. See, these kids that came up and shared, it didn't even enter their mind until I mentioned it in the first service. It didn't even enter their mind that we might run out of hygiene supplies and lunch here in Sweetwater by taking them to the homeless. They just believe there's enough. And you know what? There is. But, but Peter gets back and there's people that have this idea that, why'd you do that? Peter and Cornelius are characterized by humility towards one another and both get converted. Cornelius becomes converted to Christ. Peter becomes converted to understand that anybody can know Jesus. So as we wrap up, man, I see the amount of prayer going on with Cornelius and Peter. And as I see things in our culture that need to change, and if you want to be a part of those things changing, that begins with seeking God genuinely. I see the hospitality between Peter and Cornelius. I encourage you to think about who can you have around your dinner table that maybe you wouldn't normally have around your dinner table? Whose table can you go sit at? Humility. Hospitality. Over and over through this passage, it's emphasized that God shows no partiality. God had built a wall around his people, but he did that in order to bring, up, to bring the Messiah who would then knock down the wall and be able to reach everybody. So Peter had this privileged position as a Jew. He was privileged. He, he was, had a privileged relationship with God. And God called Peter to leverage his privilege to be a blessing to other people for the gospel's sake. So maybe you have privilege today because of your race. Maybe you have privilege today because you got a great job. Maybe you have privilege today because everybody, this applies to everybody, you live in a great country with a lot of great freedoms. Whatever our, our privileges are, we can go around and compare our privilege. Well, you have more privilege than me and I don't have as... Or we can leverage the privilege we do have and say, whatever privilege I have, I'm going to be like Jesus who, who didn't hold on to his privilege with a clenched fist, but Philippians 2 said he emptied himself. He humbled himself all the way to death. He leveraged his privilege to reach me. Peter leverages his privilege to reach Cornelius. Whatever privilege you have, leverage it for the gospel's sake. Leverage it to be a blessing for others. Pride and prejudice are undermined by our unity in Adam. And I'm almost done. Mercifully, I know. Pride and prejudice are both undermined by our unity in Adam. Genesis 1.17 says that God made male and female in his image. And so when you walk into a room, if everybody looks like you in that room, or if everybody looks different than you in that room, you, all, you have more in common than you do uh, different because everybody in that room is created in God's image to gloriously reflect God, but also everybody in that room is wretchedly fallen and desperately in need of grace. And that unity in Adam uh, unites us far more than anything could separate us. I'm really indebted for some of these thoughts 
or many of these thoughts to Tabidi uh, Anyabwili, uh, who's, who's writing scholar, pastor. You can find him on the Gospel Coalition website. Pride and prejudice are unraveled by our unity in Christ. Again, Ephesians 2, the walls knocked down. Uh, Peter and Cornelius become brothers because of their unity in Christ. Pride and prejudice will be totally upended in the unity that comes in the new creation. Revelation 7, 9 says there's coming a day when every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne of God. And we have the opportunity to here and now be part of that. One day, all the distinctions we make between race and between social statuses and all that, it's not going to amount to anything. So why not be part of that now? So my vision for our church family, for our little church family in Sweetwater, America, is that we would be a, a, a radically, racially diverse group of people. We'd see white people, brown people, black people, Asian people. We'd see poor people and rich people come to know Christ and come to thrive in Christ. And we would be a foretaste of that day that we all gather around the throne. I don't have that vision because that's the cool thing to do. I have that vision because it's the biblical thing to do. And because that's what the gospel results in. Um, so I've got to continue to ask myself a question. How can I learn about issues that make me uncomfortable? Maybe how can I even read people that I don't like, but force me to think? How can I view issues, whatever the hot-button issues of the day might be, how can I view those not from a Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal perspective, but from a gospel perspective? Um, G.K. Chesterton wrote once, and the band's coming up, he wrote once, it isn't that we can't see the solution, it's that we can't see the problem. And so if you've heard everything that I've said and you're, and you're thinking, what is this guy talking about? There, and you may. But if you say, there's absolutely no racial issues going on in our world right now, let's talk later, okay? Some of us are having a hard time seeing the problem. Um, so I pray Psalm 139 for myself. Let's each pray it for ourselves. God, show me if my heart's hard. Reveal to me, search my heart. I pray that, that God would continually bring me to deeper repentance when it comes to issues of prejudice. Um, God's brought me a long way. But when I talk to fellow believers about this issue of prejudice, um, as people that talk a lot about repentance, we really, we really resist repentance on this issue. I'd ask us to learn. I'd ask us to intentionally connect to people different whether it's different than you racially or socially, be intentional and let's let the gospel drive us. Let's stand and let's sing together.